Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast for the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, your host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon, and publishes those in, with detailed reports in the quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, otherwise known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the Observer's Notebook, you can donate it to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5 you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you will receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. A reminder, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers maintains many individual observing sections and programs devoted to the study of various solar system bodies and phenomenon. Each is managed by one or more coordinators that collect and study the submitted observations. If you would like to join the ALPO, you can for as little as $14 a year. For more information, you can visit us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And now, The Observer's Notebook. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. Uh, we have a special edition of the podcast today. We have Tom Williams. He wrote his doctorate thesis uh, from Rice University on Getting Organized, a History of Amateur Astronomy in the United States. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't you give everybody a little background about yourself? All right. I, uh, I'm age 82, which means I've been around for quite a while. <laughs> I retired in 1992 from Shell, uh, and I here in Houston, that's where I'm living right now. Uh, I was a chemist and industrial manager during that uh, employment. I got interested in uh, astronomy when I was in the elementary school in, in California and uh, followed that up with an astronomy course in uh, during my college uh education, and then pretty much was what I call an armchair astronomer. I just read uh, astronomy books uh, for quite a few years. Uh, at, when Shell transferred me to, uh, to New York City, we lived in Darien, Connecticut, and uh, driving around one weekend, I uh, stumbled across the Stanford Observatory uh, 
and uh, went up and knocked the door, and it turns out Charles Scoville was there, so uh-huh. he answered the door. He t- gave me a tour of the observatory, and their 22-inch Maxudo Cassegrain, really, really oh, old an instrument, and invited me to join the uh, Fairfield County Astronomical Society, which I did. And active in that membership, <clears throat> in addition to uh, Scoville, were uh, John Bortle and uh, Clint Ford. Bortle uh, has been a member of ALPO for a long time. Yeah, he used to run the Comet section. That's right. Uh, and uh, there, it also turned out that uh, the there were active observers from the uh, Amateur Association, uh, let's see, what do they call it? Uh, the Amateur Astronomy Association of New York, uh, who came up to Stanford to the observatory to uh, observe important events. So I also met uh, Wayne Lauder and Eddie Orovac and others from mm-hmm. that group. Uh, in other words, it was a very rich experience to be around the uh, Fairfield County Astronomical Society and the Stanford Observatory. And so that was my early introduction to observational astronomy. Uh, Bortle encouraged me to observe comets. I'm sure he did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, so I started doing that. Scoville encouraged me to visit, to uh, v- observe variable stars, mm-hmm. which I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got started in both those fields. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, with Bortle, Bortle's encouragement, I, uh, my first astronomical publication was uh, was made. I uh, the first comet that I ever observed at uh, Stanford was Comet Abe, oh my. Uh, and and the second comet I ever observed was Comet Bennett. Oh, <laughs> nice! Yeah, that's right. Spectacular. Yes. Well, on on Comet Abe, I didn't actually make an effort to report the results, uh, but I did report uh, the results on uh, Comet Bennett. Mm-hmm. It was <clears throat> submitted sketches and so forth, and I was very pleased, in fact, excited that uh, I don't know whether it was several years or a long time after I reported that. I think the Dennis Milan wasn't he a yes he uh, was. Uh, Okay, I think Dennis was the uh, leader of the comet section at that time. And he had picked out one of my uh, sketches of Comet Bennett, and it became a cover for for the strolling astronomer. Oh, my goodness. Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah, well, that was kind of exciting. Yeah. I remember remember the first time one of my observations were published in the ALPO journal. (laughs) And I think it was, actually, I think it was Comet Bennett. I really do. I think it was, oh, that right? it was used as reference in the article, and I was like, oh, my God, look at that. It makes gives you satisfaction that what you're doing is actually useful. Oh, wasn't that a spectacular comment? That was amazing. I mean, yeah, I, I, I understand how uh, important that is to see something like that uh, published. Well, at any rate, uh, my, uh, my whole exposure to amateur astronomy as an observer then was was focused on science and uh, that became very important is <clears throat> in uh, what happened after that so uh, I when I moved to Houston with uh, 
was the Shell headquarters in about um, that was in about 1969, I guess it was. Uh, I joined the Houston Astronomical Society, and I was quite disappointed to find that uh, there was only one person who was regularly trying to do any scientific observing, the president of the HAS. And he was very pleased that I was doing observing of variable stars and comets. His interests were in meteors. And every once in a while, he'd try to get a group of people organized to observe meteors at one of the major showers and he'd get people out but nobody wanted to write up their observations so he submitted reports for them uh, that was disappointing to me and so I began to campaign uh, uh, to in- interest the HAS members in uh, contributing some way to science through ALPO or AVSO or if they were not interested in meteors and so forth I kind of took that up with a missionary zeal. <laughs> and, and, uh, you have to the, do that sometimes, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And after uh, after a while, I met Paul Maley. I think he made a presentation to the AVSO. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry, to the HAS. And uh, I got very interested in occultation observations. So by this time, I was kind of spread thin, <laughs> trying to do comets and uh, variable stars mainly at that time. But I did, I did do one or maybe two uh, occultation observations, and then Shell moved me to Woodbury, New Jersey. And there I met uh, some high school students who had formed the Willingboro Astronomical Society, and they were quite receptive to my missionary effort. And uh, so I I really enjoyed helping them become scientific observers. And uh, a, a very bright comet, naked eye, mm-hmm. and it and it uh, and it kind of didn't pan out that way. So um, <laughs> uh, that wasn't Cohotek, was it? Comet Cohotek. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That was like 1974, uh, right around then. Yeah. Right. Right about then. Yeah. They got very excited about it. We went out and did a, uh, uh, an observing session, and everybody I encouraged everybody to write up their observations and and do the right things to get them to Alpo and so forth. Yeah, Comet Cohotek, hmm. what a bad experience. But they enjoyed <laughs> they enjoyed it, and they understood how important it was for the science. So, right. at least one of those kids went on to be a professional astronomer. Oh, uh, that's great. Uh, Todd Lauer. Then uh, I moved back to Houston, took up my effort in the HAS, uh, to no avail. <laughs> but, Sometimes uh, you just can't fix it, you know. <laughs> that's right. But the but the members of the uh, some of the members recognized my uh, my intent, and when the te- first Texas Star Party came along, I. Uh, I was encouraged to make a presentation to the, to the Texas Star Party. Uh, at, that's out at McDonald Observatory. So I did, uh, because by then I had recognized uh, that one of the problems in this whole thing was um, the recognition of um, amateur astronomers as uh, 
amateur scientists mm -hmm. and the need to participate in science. So I made a presentation at the um, Star Party on, um, how did I title it? I said, uh, recognizing an astronomer as an amateur, which is kind of a pro provocative title because I... Uh, I knew I would get the attention of the professionals that were there as well. Mm -hmm. And as a part of that presentation, I um, I put forward a uh, a table of amateur astronomers that I could identify as interesting at that point in time. And that turned out to have some really interesting names on it. I was I was very impressed with the people that turned up uh, on that list. Well, it turns out that Bart Bach was was what it was the keynote speaker at the convention is that a familiar name for you yeah okay and he thought that was very interesting so he encouraged me to pursue that table and i got i made that presentation to the avso and they several of the professionals there encouraged me to make that presentation focused on the history and uh, that's what they emphasized. In fact, they said uh, that historical table was the most interesting part of your ob of your presentation, <laughs> which which was kind of a blow. I thought I'd done some very good work, you know. On the uh, people like charts and graphs, though. So that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I did that, though. I took their advice, and uh, they pointed out that there was a historical astronomy division in the AAS, American Astronomical Society, that had just gotten organized. So I communicated with some people in the uh, Historical Astronomy Division. They invited me to a meeting, and I made that same presentation, but with an expanded history table, and kind of downplayed some of the hectoring over, uh, kind of to encourage amateurs to be, pick up the mantle of scientific observer. And they thought that was very interesting, and so they encouraged me to join, and, and uh, I've been pretty much a historian ever since then. And not an observational astronomer. I found that I could not do my work at Shell, uh, and I'd been in the uh, Army Reserve. I couldn't keep up with that. My observing just had to go out the window. Uh, so I'm not, I, <laughs> I now consider myself a uh, a historian, not an, an amateur astronomer, uh, except to the extent that amateur astronomy is the work that I've been doing, on, especially since I retired. So it sounds like your dissertation evolved from this work you did up front for years, basically, and you, you actually laid a lot of the groundwork early on. That's right. Uh, I, t I took a history of astronomy course from uh, at Rice, and the the fact the professor that taught that uh, took my term paper, and he said, "This is very good. Uh, have you ever considered uh, taking up the history of astronomy?" <laughs> so, so I said, "Well, no, I hadn't." As a matter of fact, but I I pointed out what I was doing at the uh, historical astronomy division at the AHAS or AAS. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you all summer to um, finish this up, and then I'll use it as a as an entry credential for graduate school if you want to do that. Oh, my goodness. And so I said, yes, I do. 
and uh, retired early from Shell. And uh, you know, uh, history took took the major seat after that. So that's kind of how I got to where I am. I'm sorry that may be too long and rambling. No, it, it it spells out very nicely how you got to this point. What were some of the challenges you had though when you put this dissertation together? Oh, uh, I tell you, that's that's a very interesting question because the uh, the fact is the data is not very easy to come by. I uh, it turns out amateur astronomical societies have only in uh, rare cases organized an archive that represented their their organization. So most of the information that I was able to round up came from sources other than amateur uh, societies. And <clears throat> interestingly enough, a lot of that came from professional observatories and their archives. Hmm. Uh, the uh, It turns out many amateurs wrote to, to observatory directors, particularly back in the 19th and early 20th centuries, for advice on how they could do scientific observing. And the names that cropped up in those pieces of correspondence then turned out to be important names in other ways when I began talking to people about amateur organization. A, a very important observatory uh, resource that I stumbled into was at the unit at the uh, U.S. Naval Observatory. Uh, the library in there uh, was uh, Brenda Corbin, and Brenda had been a good friend of Mabel Stearns. That's probably not a familiar name. I don't know, but Brenda, uh, but Mabel Stearns was the Secretary of the Astronomical League for a long time. Okay. And uh, as a part of that effort, she took on the idea of making a presentation of the history of amateur astronomy uh, for the centennial observation of the United States uh, in um, 1976. And as a good friend of, of Brenda's, she came to the observatory and asked if she could leave all of her files uh, at the observatory and the library. And Brenda, of course, latched onto them. And there was a lot of extremely valuable material in what Babel Stearns had written up. Brenda got interested in that, and so she began gathering other material. And uh, uh, probably the most valuable piece of information I got out of that uh, resource was uh, not only the work by Mabel Stearns, but actually Brenda had found somewhere a copy of the, uh, uh, a com fairly complete copy of the monthly notices of the uh, Society for Practical Astronomy. And uh, I'll come back to that a little later. But uh, okay. anyway, uh, on archives, I did find that the amateur telescope makers of Boston uh, the New York uh, Amateur Astronomers Association, Chicago Astronomical Society, Milwaukee Astronomical Society, very importantly, Los Angeles Astronomical Society, and the East Bay Astronomical Society were the places where I found some organized uh, 
resources. Uh, the, the Milwaukee Astronomical Society had a huge resource. And uh, if you read the dissertation, you know about uh, Ed Halbach mm-hmm. and the uh, and the people at the MAS. So, the uh, and interestingly enough, the AVSO, which by that point in time I'd served as president, had their resources were all in boxes shoved into a closet that you could not access without uh, <laughs> so I for the AVSO I I, uh, I had to rely on published histories uh, and uh, that turned out to be kind of a, a bad uh, uh, choice because some of the published histories of, of the AVSO were written to serve a particular purpose, which is deadly in, in oh. history. <laughs> so I had one to, side uh, of the history, huh? That's right. What do we call and it nowadays? We call it uh, alternate facts. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, so I, 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 my part, my uh, my history of the uh, in the dissertation is a little distorted by that, and I was later later able to. Uh, Help the AVSO organize an, uh, an archive out of that material that proved to be very valuable when uh, Mike Saladiga, who was appointed the archivist there, and I wrote the centennial history of the AVSO, uh, which was uh, has a lot of the history of amateur astronomy in it. And uh, if you're uh, if Alpo members are at all interested. Uh, I'll give myself a plug and say that that was published by uh, Cambridge University Press and is still available. Oh. Uh, and it's it's a pretty interesting glimpse of this question of uh, scientific observing uh, because, uh, well, the AAVSO is really kind of the organization that uh, started amateur astronomy down that path. Uh, but at any rate, those are the resources I relied on. Okay. Uh, I did. I did have a trip to uh, London, uh, which was part of a bigger project that I did for my advisor at Rice. Uh, and I was able to visit the archives of the uh, of the, the uh, Royal Astronomical Society and oh the BAA, goodness. and uh, I got some very good information about the BAA, who were important uh, to this. The history of amateur astronomy in the United States, interestingly enough. Uh, so the uh, archives of the BAA and the uh, uh, RAS were very important in all this. And I, I guess that really kind of sums up where the information came from. Now, you've mentioned a lot about uh, astronomers who do scientific research type work. But right. in your dissertation, you talk about all different types of amateur astronomers. Can you give us a little background of what the different types of amateur astronomers you saw while you wrote this? Uh, yes. <clears throat> they, um, when I was first getting started in this, I stumbled across a, um, a, a piece of sociology uh, that was uh, published by... <clears throat> professor at the University of Calgary, Robert Stebbins. Uh, Stebbins was uh, studying uh, the sociology of leisure, the use of leisure time by people. So he was interested in stamp collectors and amateur baseball players and uh, 
all kinds of things. But he had written one article about amateur astronomers and amateur archaeologists. As a part of the work that he had published, uh, he had presented a what he called a typology of participants for uh, rec- rec- in recreational uh, activities of any kind, in which he categorized people as uh, a novice or uh, a uh, participant. Let's see, I know it was his categorization. Anyway, his categorization became very important in what I was doing because it said, here was a way of separating the wheat from the chaff. And uh, the thing that I had had most trouble with was how to define an amateur astronomer. I finally realized when I was looking through the Stebbins work that you had to define an amateur astronomer in uh, in, com- in comparison with a professional astronomer. In other words, that you, in order to be an amateur astronomer, you had first to be an amateur. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you had first to be an astronomer. And then, if you were an astronomer and doing scientific astronomy, you could classify yourself as an amateur or professional depending on whether you were paid or not paid. Okay. Now, uh, a lot of the professional astronomers that I began working with in the AAVSO in particular and through uh, the Historical Astronomy Division uh, at first took exception to that because they recognized that uh, professional astronomers by that time in the mid to late 1980s were involved in these huge telescopes to which amateurs were not uh, available and uh, were involved in deep sky work, you know, galaxies and so forth that uh, uh, were not of any interest to amateurs. And they weren't really interested at all in the solar system or in the... the, uh, in near stellar astronomy, uh, or very few of them were. So uh, the professional community would would uh, resist uh, the idea that amateurs were astronomers in that sense. And it took me a while to convince people that that was the case. Eventually, some professional astronomers began to accept that idea uh, among the participants in the Historical Astronomy Division was uh, Don Osterbach, who had been uh, director of the uh, Lick Observatory and director of Yerkes Observatory and then of Lick Observatory, and had done some very fine work on uh, uh, neb- uh, the uh, planetary nebulae and so forth. Uh, and Diane in particular said, you're really on to something. Keep going in this direction. Hmm. So I did, and I had a lot of support from him. As a matter of fact, talk about archives. I kept running into Da at uh, various archives, and he would uh, shove his deck of cards that he had gathered with information. He was a classic uh, old-time scholar. He wrote a card down for every piece of information that he thought was interesting. <laughs> the references and everything and he had this huge deck I can't imagine how big his deck of cards were at that point 
But uh, he began shoving decks of cards to me uh, on subjects that he knew would be of interest. I I did a paper at the um, Historical Astronomy Division on John Mellish. And so he, he gave me a stack of cards that were extremely valuable uh, on Mellish. I changed my view of Mellish completely. Uh, but, but that's an example of professional astronomers who mm-hmm. came around. Uh, a lot of the astronomers who were involved in the AVSO did uh, because they knew that AVSO members were doing good science and uh, they valued their work. So they were very quick to pick up this definition. It was not so quickly uh, picked up by amateurs. In fact, uh, they, they take a particular exception to the way I began classifying amateurs, and that was your point, I think. And that was as, um, as either amateur astronomers, if you did science, or as a recreational observer, right. if you were only going out to look at deep sky objects and look at the planets and the moon and so forth, but were not doing any scientific work. Mm. And those are the two classifications in which I divided people up. And uh, okay. that's, that's back, the background there. Okay, when did, let's go back now, when did the first amateur astronomers organize into groups? When did you first see that occurring? Uh, well, I mentioned the uh, the uh, Royal Astronomical Society. That was actually formed by amateur astronomers, or what I would consider amateur astronomers today, uh, in about 1830, in the late 1820s, early 1830s. Uh, and at that time, uh, it was exclusively this is an organization of amateurs because the professionals only existed at Greenwich in that period of time and they were only interested in uh, what they called practical astronomy which was this idea of uh, measuring where an object is, an astronomical object is how far away it is uh, whether or not it's moving over time and how large it is that's not an original categorization. I think, uh, 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 oh gosh, I can't think of the guy's name who's the director of the, of the Hayden Planetarium. Scrub this part. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, uh, at any rate, that, that's what the practical astronomers in, at Greenwich Observatory were all about. And they were not at all interested in what the amateurs, as they saw it, were doing uh, in the Royal Astronomical Society. Well, the amateurs began publishing a journal that they called the Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, which were darn good science. And eventually, the professionals uh, became large enough in Britain that they wanted a society of their own. And to make a long story short, they eventually appropriated the Royal Astronomical Society as a professional organization and, in effect, drove out the amateurs. Really? Yes. We then uh, founded uh, first uh, the Liverpool Astronomical Society, which was doing science uh, in a very good way and and had a small international following as well as uh, amateurs around England. 
that collapsed because of financial problems. Then a selenographic society was formed. Uh, and then after that collapsed, the, uh, the British Astronomical Association was formed. That became very successful because all of these astronomers, amateur astronomers, who had been doing good scientific work, finally joined the BAA, and they formed sections for each observing, each type of observing, planetary, lunar, meteors, variable stars, the uh, zodiacal lights, and so forth. Now, the reason I say that, I mention all of that, is that that became a very important model for amateur astronomy in the United States. Mm -hmm. the, the first... Uh, <clears throat> so when we talk about amateur astronomies in the United States then, you have to start with the American Astronomical Society of Brooklyn, which was founded in... Um, I think 1980. I'm sorry, 1883, and wasn't very successful. But they did have both amateur and professional members. Uh, the uh, the name amateur, uh, the Astronomical Society, uh, American Astronomical Society, actually uh, then was cast as, a, as an amateur organization, and when the professional astronomers actually got around to organizing in uh, 1899, they couldn't use that title <laughs> associated with an amateur organization. So they couldn't so, just take it over like the Brits did, huh? <laughs> that's right, that's right. So they had, to, they had to describe their organization as the Astronomical and Astrophysical uh, uh, Society. Make them sound uh, smarter, huh? Oh, that's right. <laughs> well, and they were. This is true. This is true. Good point. Yeah. And later on, they, they decided, that when the AAS of Brooklyn collapsed and they were passed out of memory, they decided to change the name. <clears throat> I think that happened in about 1910, 1915, somewhere along in there. So it wasn't very long. So the first organization was the Amateur, uh, the American Astronomical Society in Brooklyn, there was, uh, I've heard of an amateur astronomer's organization in uh, Baltimore that predated the AAS of Brooklyn, but I've never been able to find much information. So that's something that's lodged in the back of my memory that uh, one of these days I'll, I'll do more digging around. Now it sounds uh, like, then, oh, I'm sorry, go on. Uh, go ahead and ask your question. No, just go on your 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 train of thought because okay. you were going somewhere yeah. where I was going to uh, ask. Yeah, I, uh, I I then discovered that there was an organization called the uh, Society for Practical Astronomy hmm. that had been founded in Chicago, and <laughs> that came to light because Brenda Corbin at the U.S. Naval Observatory, among the resources she had, she had a nearly complete uh, set of the monthly notices of the, of the Society for Practical Astronomy. Well, you may notice the correlation there between the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. And this organization was started by a pair of fairly pretentious teenagers who 
wrote to everybody in the, in, that was involved in astronomy all over the United States and announced the creation of the society. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And started, and this was, the main character here was a guy named uh, uh, Fred Leonard. Uh, and Leonard, in particular, had started publishing the monthly notices of the Leonard Observatory before he and, uh, I can't think of the other guy's name, uh, started, uh, decided they would found the Society for Practical Astronomy. But because they had advertised this so widely, they had uh, gathered very quickly a, a group of astronomers that were across the United States. And so the SPA could really be classified as the first national organization. They, they formed sections. They modeled their activities on the BAA. That's mm-hmm. why the BAA is, is uh, important to this history. And they, they attracted a number of people uh, to their activities. One of the people that, uh, that Leonard recruited to, uh, to uh, chair one of his sessions was uh, William Tyler Alcott. Oh. who by that point in time had also founded the AAVSO. Right. And it was a it was a going concern, although it didn't have the support of Harvard College Observatory. Uh, so there was some question about whether the AAVSO would survive. Through the uh, Society for Practical Astronomy, uh, Alcott met a number of people who were not AAVSO members, and eventually, after after about a year, he resigned as chairman of the variable star section, and the entire variable star section left with him to to become uh, members of the AVSO. Interesting. Yeah. So that was sort of a stab in the back for the, for Leonard. Right. There was also a professional astronomy who became section leader for one of the sections, Charles Pollard Olivier, who was. Uh, at the time, a graduate student at the University of Virginia uh, took up the role of a meteor uh, meteor section chairman, and he later formed the uh, American very quickly, That's right, the American <laughs> Society. After that, so so Leonard was not successful in those two cases, but he did have a uh, a functioning planetary observing organization and some other things. Uh, and the Planetary Observing Organization had some very, very capable people. Uh, Latimer J. Wilson, who may be a familiar name, uh, was actually an outstanding uh, planetary observer, planetary and lunar observatory, and he was uh, induced to take on the presidency of the uh, SPA. And he was elected the second president of the SBA when that was when Fred Leonard decided he would go to college, and he couldn't he couldn't be a college student and keep all of this going as the president of the SBA. So, I there was in the plans a third national convention of the SBA. There having been two of them, and there was a third one planned for. Rochester, New York, under the auspices of uh, uh, the uh, one of their vice presidents, who was uh, actually very involved in telescope manufacture and later founded his own company. But I can't find any minutes from that meeting, and I'm not really clear that although they published an agenda and there are copies of the agenda around, 
Uh, I'm not really clear that the meeting ever took place. So. Yeah, I can't find any attendees. Huh? What what year was the first astronomy convention? Was that with the SPA? Uh, yes, actually it was. Uh, they had a, a, a meeting in uh, Chicago. I'm sorry. They, they advertised that there would be a meeting somewhere. <laughs> and Russell Porter, who was uh, one of the first amateur telescope makers, invited the SPA to come to his his home in Maine <laughs> and hold their convention there. Well, I think there were a half a dozen people showed up, uh, including uh, not Fred Leonard himself, mm. but uh, Leonard's partner uh, in the founding the SPA, whose name I can't remember. I should get my dissertation out and look that up. <laughs> uh, not now. Not, oh, do you? Yeah, but it's not <laughs> oh, no, no, there's yeah. no index. Because there's no index, right. and it's hard to use. But the Porter Convention was important because it proved there was a body of, of people who were attracted to a national convention. So a second national convention was held in Chicago, and there were both professional astronomers and amateur astronomers who attended that. There were people who came from all over the country. Not a large group. I think there were about 20 people. But that's the second convention, and that was held in 1915, I think, uh, 1915 or 1914. The third annual convention was supposed to be held in 1916, and uh, that, uh, that, as I say, there was an agenda published for, uh, and I, I have somewhere a copy of that uh, agenda because it was published in Popular Astronomy. So, uh, then... Uh, there wasn't really another national convention uh, along that line where there were people from all different disciplines uh, who came. AVSO had a national convention uh, in which only AVSO members were there. Uh, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. And that was the AVSO annual meeting that constituted, I think, the only national meeting that uh, you could point to until uh, in the mid-1920s when the amateur telescope making movement took off. And uh, there, they started having meetings at Stellafane, which was uh, where the, uh, the, Vermont, uh, the Springfield uh, telescope makers, uh, founded by uh, Russell Porter, had been meeting and uh, and uh, holding their own uh, meetings, inviting people to them. But they were they were people who were already committed to amateur telescope making. And uh, more on that a little later, I guess. Yeah. What about whatever uh, happened to the SPA? I've never heard of that organization until reading your dissertation. What well, happened? they collapsed. Yeah. Uh, uh, Nobody else splintered it? off from them and started other organizations. That was pretty much no, it. No. No. Uh, there were other organizations for which uh, there's a record, and uh, if you're interested, I'll come back to those. But uh, the amateur telescope-making movement took off in the middle of uh, uh, the 1920s because uh, not only Russell Porter, but uh, the editor of Scientific American, uh, Albert G. Engels, got very interested in this and began writing articles about it. Scientific American had a huge readership among people who wanted to be amateur scientists. 
And uh, most of those people were very attractive to the idea of making their own telescope because it was you could do it with very little money, as uh, Engels pointed out repeatedly. This was something that uh, professionals like doctors and lawyers and ordinary mechanics and uh, garbage collectors uh, could actually take up because it didn't require all that much money. It was very fascinating from a technical point mm-hmm. of view. And the results... If you used it, made it into a telescope, were actually quite uh, satisfying in terms of going out and looking at the night sky. So the Stellafane meetings began uh, taking place. Uh, when was it? Maybe in the early 1930s. In the in the mid 1930s, then there was another effort to found a. Um, uh, a, um, an organization, a national organization. I've mentioned the Milwaukee Ad- Astronomical Society and uh, Ed Hallbach. There was another organization that was important to this, and that was the Mil- Milwaukee Southern Illinois Astronomical Association. And in that case, the, uh, the leader of that was uh, J. Wesley Simpson. And he published a newsletter called the Sidereal Messenger. And, and the Sidereal Messenger actually got some national circulation. But then when the <coughs> when Hallback and Simpson got together, they decided they would found a, a, a national organization that they called the Amateur Astronomers Association of America, the AAAA, the very successful in terms of gathering people all over the United States who wanted to pursue scientific observing. Uh, It was very interesting that these people were out there, but there was no vehicle for getting them together. So they began to publish uh, a journal uh, called uh, Amateur Astronomy, the Journal of the American Association of, of Astronomical uh, Amateur Astronomers. And that got very popular, and so it got a fairly wide distribution. But the problem was that they didn't ask people to subscribe. They just tried to do that out of the membership dues. And in the middle of the Depression, there was, there was not much money that could be collected yeah. in the way of membership dues. So, in effect, the uh, AAAA and its journal collapsed in uh, after about four or five years in business. Then there was another uh, effort <coughs> that emerged out of that to form an organization because people recognized that there was um, a need for amateur astronomers, of which there were quite a few at that point in time, uh, uh, an organizing uh, or, uh, entity around which they could begin to meet and talk about their problems in common. Uh, there, there were two publications in existence at that time: uh, the Amateur Astronomer and the uh, Sidereal Messenger had gone out of business, uh, and there had been an organization that founded. Uh, the sky at um, the uh, let's see where is that 
I guess that was the New York organization that founded the sky. Uh, a little fuzzy on that. The uh, at Harvard College Observatory, they decided they would publish a magazine at the same time that they called the telescope. And eventually, uh, that those two organizations, those two uh, magazines were found, uh, uh, combined to form Sky and Telescope. Now the, now the people who did that combination uh, were Charles Federer and his wife, Helen Spence Federer. And they saw that if there was, that in order to make that succeed, which neither the Sky nor the Telescope had done very significantly, they would have to have a large national readership. So in the late 1930s, they began advocating the formation of another organization, uh, of a national organization of amateur astronomers, and provided a lot of the leadership. And they were successful in getting a lot of people to interested in this. And among whom was uh, Ed Hallbach, who, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. And they had a national convention uh, in about 1938 or 39. They had another one in 19, 1940. They had another one uh, in 1941 that was, uh, all three of those had uh, national attendance. But they never managed to form an organization out of those conventions. And then World War II came along, and so the idea was uh, kind of put on the back burner. There was a dispute in that organization, though, about uh, how they things should be organized. There were some people who favored organizing it along the lines of the BAA. And the, the Federers didn't think that was a useful uh, way of organizing it because they, were, they saw that there were a larger number of people who were only interested in what I call recreational astronomy and that their audience would really have to be directed primarily to them. So the, the Federers actually led an effort to uh, form uh, another organization at the same time that uh, there, and let's see, it was the National Amateur Astronomers Convention, and National Amateur National Amateur Convention, National Amateur Astronomers Convention got uh, called by the Denver Astronomical Society, and there were a fair number of people who went to Denver and participated in that meeting and agreed that they should form, uh, that they should have another convention, that's a pattern, and they had another convention, and the third convention that they tried to organize kind of collapsed, so there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a way for the Denver group to really get that going very much, there wasn't enough money and so forth. So out of that effort grew uh, a, an effort to found uh, an organization that started in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with the support of uh, Leon Campbell from the AVSO and uh, Arlo Shapley from the Harvard College Observatory. Shapley was the director of the Har right. Harvard College right. Observatory. <clears throat> and that organization, uh, this was in the middle of the war, 
was really intended originally to be a scientific organization modeled on the BAA. But the Federers got involved, and they convinced Shapley that there would be a bigger membership to support the this organization if, in fact, uh, it it uh, was more directed to the, the astronomy market broadly. And so Shapley led the efforts of the uh, fledgling organization in that direction toward recreational astronomy and not so much on science, although they had an organizing committee that was organized along scientific lines. And the, the, uh, when the war ended, that was in 1943, 44, 45, when the war ended, uh, the Federers managed to get uh, another... A convention, a national convention organized on the basis of uh, the organization that uh, had been going in the late 1930s and early 1940s because this uh, organization that Shapley was was uh, a leader, uh, one of the leaders of, had actually collapsed in the meantime. There was never, a, there was never an organization that gelled out of that, although it had some very good leadership meetings with all of the organizations represented. The uh, the, the national let's see what did they call it? The Amateur Astronomers League then had their first meeting in uh, 1946, and then again in 47. That's the Astronomical did, League. Well, yeah, I was going to say that that's what ended up as okay. the Astronomical League. It wasn't titled that first, oh, okay. but it, it, it morphed very quickly into the Astronomical League. There was a huge debate uh, about whether or not the, the League would be organized uh, like the BAA, and the Federers finally won out on that. It was really, a, there were people from the AVSO that were involved in that debate, particularly a guy named Dave Rosebrew. Uh, Walter Haas actually <clears throat> attended some of those meetings and was representing the planetary observers. But it, but it seems like the, the Federers really uh, won that argument because after efforts to organize sections in the uh, Astronomical League, it, it uh, collapsed, and the betters rescued the organization by by uh, suggesting that the organization be uh, uh, an organization of clubs rather than an organization of sections, and that local clubs should be recruited and ask their members to join the Astronomical League. And so the, the name of the organization was changed to Astronomical okay. League, and that became the basis of it. Uh, and it's still going strong today. Oh, famously, yeah, yes. they're tremendously successful. All, well, since nineteen, about nineteen fifty, the effort has been dropped to create technical sessions, sections in the in the Astronomical League. That's been that's uh, been that's had faltering efforts to revive that. The league actually involved. Uh, an eclipse project for the 1970 solar eclipse uh, that was really a good scientific project. Uh, 
the, the project was based on the availability of uh, a, a film called XR Film that has multiple, three different uh, emulsion layers, one of which was very fast, one of which was medium fast, and one was very slow. And the light would shine through these three uh, layers and would make different exposures uh, based on how bright the light was. So, for example, the low uh, sensitivity uh, level of uh, uh, the emulsion would record only the brightest parts of the uh, of the eclipse, and the lowest and the highest sensitivity would record the faintest objects in the corona and so forth, but uh, that would be burned out with the image of the sun itself. <coughs> and of, <coughs> of the, uh, So anyway, the, that, that turned out to be uh, a success from the point of view that <coughs> there were observers scattered out along a line from, uh, from the Mexican coast to uh, I guess Nova Scotia was the highest northernmost point, and they all sent uh, their films in, and uh, they were developed. And uh, Paul Vallely from uh, the Amateur Telescope Makers of Boston was the guy who organized that uh, and reported the results. And the re results were that there was no motion in the coronal streamers, which was the, in the final analysis was the purpose of this experiment, was to okay. determine whether or not there, there was motion in the coronal streamers. But it got, there got a lot of people excited about it. <clears throat> that, as far as I know, was the first effort after the founding of the League itself to try and do some scientific work. Uh, there are other people uh, <clears throat> in the organization who have from time to time promoted scientific work uh, and and eventually they form this these Messier clubs right they, they have all getting, sorts of different clubs now that you can get a, I think a certificate if you do certain Messier objects and NGC and Comet and Lunar Club and things like that as well yes it's very well organized yeah and that's taken a long time and uh, there <clears throat> there is a variable star group Mm -hmm. And so that's introduced scientific observing to this whole thing. There's a uh, NOVA group, I think. Anyway, that's the Astronomical League seems to be kind of drifting back in the direction of scientific observing. And that's that's encouraging. But the in the meantime, the AVSO and ALPO have prospered. And the American Meteor Society died out for a while, and then it's become more active recently. Yeah, our uh, the ALPO's meteor section recorder is actually, I believe, the president of the AMS right now too. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's a useful tie. Yeah, and he's got uh, he's on an upcoming podcast. I've already talked to him, so it's a very interesting conversation. Interesting group. Oh, yeah, good. I was let me say with respect to the uh, American Meteor Society that uh, it it fell into a morbid state uh, for a long time. Uh, the professional astronomer who was the director of it simply didn't have the time to do the organizational work. And so the there was no way of uh, getting the meteor observations organized, although there were, there were people who were reporting, uh, like Ken Anderson in Houston. And so eventually their people kind of slowed down on the meteor observing. 
as luck would have it, some people came along who were very interested and got things going again, <clears throat> among whom was a guy named Richard Tyvey in Maryland. And he uh, actually uh, is now writing, has written a, a history of the American Meteor Society, which is published by Springer. So those of your listeners who are interested in meteors might find it uh, uh, interesting to pick up Rich's book and uh, get that history. It's really written as a biography of Charles Pollard Olivier, who was the founder of of the meteor section of SPA and then who founded the AMS as a result of the people he gathered up in that. But, uh, and he was very important, incidentally, for Walter Haas's career. Um, So that has something to do with uh, ALPO as well. So let's let's Um, talk about since this is the official podcast of the ALPO, um, yes. <laughs> let's talk about the ALPO. Uh, I talked to Matt Will on our very first podcast, and he's actually the one that told me about you. He got a lot right. of his information about the history, but and we only went into a sliver of the history of the ALPO with Matt. So let's go into it a little deeper with you. So what can you okay. tell us? Okay. All right. Uh, I've mentioned this organization, the American Association of, uh, of Amateur Astronomers, and they they formed a planetary observing section. The leader of that, as I recall, was a guy named Edwin P. Martz, who was uh, really fine uh, planetary observers and ended up being a professional astronomer at JPL. The thing that's the thing that, the reason I mentioned Martz is that he was the second person to spend a summer uh, at the at the observatory of William Pickering at, in, uh, in Jamaica. The first astronomer having been uh, Walter Haas. So Martz and Haas were, uh, were aware of each other, and uh, Walter also had formed uh, a network of other observers. When he was first started observing and publishing his results in the uh, journal of the BAA, and anywhere else he could publish them. He published in the uh, uh, Journal of the RASC, and I don't know, there were probably other places. Those are the two that come to mind. But at any rate, Walter attracted the interest of other amateurs, of whom uh, uh, Frank, uh, I'm sorry, Hugh uh, Johnson, and Curtis Vaughn, uh, I'm sorry, Frank Vaughn, uh, were the most important, they were the closest to Walter, and those three people had a high volume correspondence comparing observations and doing the kinds of things that uh, they thought were important to an organization of amateurs, or to amateur astronomers who wanted to do scientific observing. Walter was really kind of the leader in that, and as I see it in his papers, he was the one who kept the thing together and kept it going. Uh, Hugh Johnson, this was, this was when they were high school students. Hmm. Hugh Johnson uh, later went on to uh, become a Ph.D. astronomer, astrophysicist, and was one of the earliest people uh, in uh, to take up X-ray astronomy. That was when it was 
impossible to believe that there were X-rays, let alone that you could observe them uh, from an astronomical point of view. And uh, uh, Frank Johnson was uh, a uh, turned out to be an amateur telescope maker as much as an amateur observer. He's a very good observer, and he held his own in this correspondence. He founded his own, uh, what did I say, I, Frank Vaughn. He founded his own optical company, and uh, I guess that didn't succeed, but he went on to be a very fine optician and work at the Kitt Peak Laboratories and uh, uh, for Tins, Tinsley and okay. other optical companies. So those were the kind of people who were corresponding with uh, Walter at that time. Uh, Dave Rosebrew, uh, who, had been, who was a long-term member of AVSO, tried to get uh, Walter more involved in, the, in this uh, mid-1940s organization uh, and become a part of this Shapley organization, as I would, I guess, best address it. But uh, Walter uh, stayed pretty much aloof from that because he had attracted some other good observers uh, that he didn't think would be interested, among whom were uh, Elmer Reese, who was, who was a very reclusive guy. I've never been able to find out much about him. Uh, and uh, Latimer J. Wilson, who was the second president of the Society for Practical Astronomy and had been do doing planetary observing all this time. Planetary photography, he was one of the first people to experiment when they have successful planetary photographs. Uh, he really uh, was quite dedicated to the field and he was a, he was a member of ALPO for, uh, I, for until, his, until he died. I, I should be able to look up his death year, but I don't have a handy. So Dave Rosebrew was very active in all of this and, and was helpful in promoting ALPO uh, as a parallel organization to AVSO uh, in this very earliest days. And of course, uh, there was uh, J. Russell uh, Smith uh, down here in Texas who became one of the early contributors and uh, Dave Broadhead, a lawyer out in California who helped Walter get the organization incorporated. And uh, so by the, by the time that uh, the Astronomical League flopped, uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, by the time the Astronomical League formed, formally, uh, with uh, uh, Ed... Uh, Fallback as its first president, uh, the the ALPO was up and running as a as a separate organization, and that was kind of the end in a way of the Astronomical League's aspirations to become a uh, a scientific organization because nobody could get people interested after that in either planetary observing through ALPO or in variable star observing through AVSO, which were very well organized, and through the American Meteor Society. There just wasn't that kind of interest to support uh, the Astronomical League as a scientific organization. Now, it looks like Walter m modeled the ALPO after the BAA? Yes, uh, because he, he established uh, early on 
that he couldn't handle the correspondence for the whole thing and that he needed help. And the way he did that was to solicit people for help in reviewing observations. And that later became the basis for the formal organization of sections. But uh, for a while, I, as I recall, that was pretty informal. And there were good people, wonderful people, who were section leaders there. Ed Martz for a while in planetary observing. And uh, on, let's see, on Mars. Martz was the... Uh, Mars Chick Capen, yeah. Chick Capen, yeah. Uh, Tom Craig was... Yep. Uh, and... Uh, uh, it was a who's who Tom, of observers back then. It really oh, was. Oh, yes, it, it was, really was. Tom Cave. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to and, get Jeff Beach on the podcast right now, too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, yes. Well, I encourage him. I think he should. I'm really trying to. He, I think he'd be yeah. a good conversation. Yeah. I, I don't have much to offer on ALPO after that uh, because uh, – the Strolling Astronomer was started. Uh, it was gradually formalized. It became uh, printed rather than mimeographed as Walter had started it. Uh, and it got an editorial staff, and the editorial staff turned out to be <clears throat> the section leaders. And it, it has prospered ever since then. It's gone through several forums. Uh, uh, and styles of publication, but it's been around for a long time now. So, so what do you see for the future of amateur astronomy organization, organized astronomy going forward? Well, there's. I stopped the dissertation in 1970 because there were so many ha- things happening, <clears throat> and I, th- I had enough material at that point to write, and my advisor and my wife were both advising me to stop. <laughs> so, I, I'm not going to guess who had priority in that conversation <laughs> either. Yeah. Well, the uh, my advisor walked in one day and said, uh, uh, did you want to graduate in 2000? And uh, I said, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. I'm having a lot of fun. And he said, well... If you want to, you needed to, this was in November, mid-November. If you want to, you need to defend your dissertation in mid-January. The 17th of January was the latest date. And by the way, I'm going to Europe, and I'm going to be over there for several years. <laughs> <laughs> so so when I told that to my wife. Uh, she said... Uh, you're done. <laughs> oh, you're, yeah, right. You bring home chapters. And I will edit them at night. She'd been a journalist and oh. a writer all of her career. And it turned out that uh, shortly after we got married, uh, she had uh, decided to go back to graduate school. She had a, she was an ABD in economics. She wanted to go back to graduate school. She did so at the uh, University of Texas School of Public Health. And became She got her Ph.D. in uh, public health economics. So she knew all about writing a dissertation at that point, and uh, I, 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 that was extremely valuable to my actually being able to finish it, was that uh, Al Van Helden was willing to review chapters that were not in such great shape and comment on them. Anna Faye was able to edit them. Every night when I came home, she'd hand me back a chapter, and I'd hand her a rough draft of another one. Oh, very and, good teamwork. Uh, yeah, it was wonderful, and I, I have 
only partial credit, really, for having <laughs> authored that thing because I got so much help from the two of them. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So you don't so, have any thoughts on the future? I, Yes, I do. I, okay. what I, I'm sorry where all that came in. Was okay. that I, I cut off what I was doing as research in 1970 and narrowed the focus down from amateur astronomy broadly to the organization of amateur astronomy and got the dissertation written. But the 1970 date was mainly forced on me by the fact that uh, the John Dobson had introduced the Dobsonian Telescope, which was hugely popular. We could talk for an hour about John. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, I've uh, met him many times at the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference. Oh, yeah. I've never met him, but he must have been quite a character. He was quite a, a, wonderful that's, quite a character is the good term. <laughs> was, yeah, okay. But uh, the, the Dobson had revolutionized uh, recreational astronomy at that point. Not so much on scientific observing, because it was an altazimuth and it was difficult to stay on an object for very long. But there are people who would probably challenge that view, too. So that had occurred. And at the same time, uh, uh, Pacific, uh, what was the name, Celestron, uh, emerged with their Schmidt-Cassegrains, which were... <clears throat> duplicated soon thereafter by Meade and other companies. And uh, and the Celestron, uh, let's say, call it the Smith-Cassegrain Revolution, right. uh, was allowed people to do photography and to do good scientific observing because they could track uh, an object uh, on the equatorial mounting. They could get higher magnifications than were really feasible with... Uh, the uh, conventional Newtonian mountings and the, and much more stable mountings. Uh, and so the Smith-Cassegrain actually was the other thing that, that kind of killed my interest in, uh, in going beyond 1970. Uh, I had enough information to write a dissertation on that point. And if I tried to write anything more, it would become extremely complicated and difficult. Uh, they're just... There just isn't much history uh, for any of that development. So I, I finished in 1970 for that reason. I think, that really makes sense, too, I think about it. Yeah. But I think the Schmidt-Cassegrain, in particular, uh, revolutionized yeah. uh, astronomy from the point of view of scientific observing because it became possible to support a photometer. Yep. Uh, the advent of solid-state uh, uh, physics and electronics. Large it aperture op- telescope that's portable. That's right. Yeah, uh, with drive and, and everything on it. That's right. Uh, I, the, the original uh, Celestron ads included a 10-inch, a 16-inch, and a 24-inch mm-hmm. uh, that were s- described as suitable for amateur application. Uh, right. So it, uh, that was an interesting period, but the photometers that were developed uh, were in it comparatively inexpensive. Uh, cameras uh, with CCDs became very sophisticated. And so amateur astronomers were able to buy equipment that would allow them to exceed, ex, uh, expand into photoelectric photometry, uh, photoelectric recording of images of uh, planets that could be stacked together to form 
better images that you could do with long exposures, just a welter of things that uh, that were introduced as opportunities for scientific observing. And I see that that's been the trend since 1970, and it's going to continue. Uh, it, it's uh, unimaginable. I could not have imagined during my my involvement with the AVSO that the AVSO would be actively participating in professional projects uh, and submitting valuable data that the that the that the professionals were actually asking for and wanted their participation. The Society for Practical Astronomy, I'm sorry, the Society for Backyard Astronomy was founded. Uh, and that organization is still around and has done marvelous work on, uh, uh, on visual, I mean, on photo, photometry. The uh, IOTO was formed, the International Occultation Timing Association, about that time, and they have done some marvelous work on occultations, not just by the moon, which is what I started with mm-hmm. Paul Malion, but asteroids and... Uh, they're now an international organization. In fact, with a with a German organization publishing the uh, Journal of Iota on uh, on a regular basis. So it's it's uh, quite amazing what has taken off on scientific amateur astronomy. Uh, astronomy. I think that trend will continue, and that there will be more and more integration of. Uh, of the science of astronomy and the amateur and the professional. Uh, and professionals are very willing to consider that now because they see the results uh, that are coming out of these organizations. And that's been a common thread with all the podcasts I've done, too, is the section leaders always state that the professionals come to them a lot of times requesting observations on a, on certain dates or have NASA has come to the lunar section, you know, or the Saturn or Jupiter section when they have probes going by as well. So the professionals right. are very, very interested in the work that's being done by the ALPO. I've I've been interested in watching the um, solar section uh, and, and Rick Hill's activities oh, with the solar doing, section. He's doing amazing work. Yes, I've been watching that because the AVSO solar activity has also taken off because of all this availability of, of tools. And I I gather from what Rick said in his podcast that uh, he didn't regard the two activities as in conflict. Well, that's going to happen uh, because the professionals are going to be able to sort out mm-hmm. what can amateurs do and to guide them. And in, in that case, amateur uh, professionals have actually provided gu- guidance to both groups and it's been very productive for the solar observing, as far as I can tell. I agree. I agree. Well, Tom, this has been great. I really want to thank you for coming on. Um, what well, are you you're doing very now? Welcome. What are you doing now with your life? Uh, <laughs> Enjoying the weather <laughs> in Houston? <laughs> no, actually, we just moved from one apartment to another. Ah. And right now, I can see that for months I'm going to be packing and unpacking books, oh. trying to get myself reestablished on writing. Oh, that uh, sounds like so much fun. <laughs> it is not. Uh, my wife and I moved, we, we moved in the same building, so we moved 100 boxes of books and then everything else other than the heavy furniture. So 
<laughs> we're we're both exhausted. This is good. This is a good opportunity for me to do something in astronomy. I've, I've enjoyed this. Oh, good. Well, how can everybody get a, get a hold of you? Uh, everybody. Everyone. All these thousands and millions of listeners are going to hear this podcast. <laughs> do you have email address? Someone can contact you. Yeah, I, I'm I'm happy to respond to people who call or want to write and ask for information. Uh, my email address is trw at rice.edu. And uh, that's, uh, that's I hope, uh, an email address that I'll be able to retain in the foreseeable future uh, because it's known by a lot of people around the world. So. But I, I welcome uh, uh, communication with amateur astronomers and uh, people who are interested in the history of amateur astronomy in particular, so by all means. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Tom. You're very welcome, Tim, and good luck with your podcast business. I think this is really a great effort. Thank you. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I really want to thank our special guest, Tom Williams, for coming on today. Uh, it was a very interesting conversation about the history of amateur astronomy in the U.S. and, really, the world. Uh, we upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you do, I really want you to rate and review us. I really appreciate it. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud. The link is in the show notes, and we're also available on Google Play and Stitcher. So any possible medium you want, we're available. This podcast, however, is not self-sufficient self financially. We depend upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. You can help support this podcast by donating it to via Patreon. You can give us as little as a dollar a month. Every little bit helps. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is available in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at timrobertson56. You can find the ALPO on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. You can also find the ALPO on Facebook by searching ALPO Astronomy. Once again, the ALPO is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, and the moon, the planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. Until next time, my hope is that you always have clear and steady skies. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>